Broadcasting live, a blast from the past. This is Jeff Graves. This is John McMahon. This is kind of the Always Already podcast. Always Already That's right, folks. Um, this episode is different and special and meaningful in a lot of ways for me. Um, that lovely dulcet voice you heard is going to be introduced in a second. Um, so there's no B, there's no Rachel on this podcast. It's just me, John, uh, flying solo-ish, but not really, from Colorado. I'm here visiting friends, visiting family. Um, and that's going to be relevant here in just a minute. So today is uh, Vaclav Havel Bonanza 2014-2015. slash um, Full episode about Vaclav Havel. Later on in the show, you're going to hear an interview that I did with Sarah Lyons, who is a New York-based theater artist and director who uh, directed a performance or a set of performances of Vaclav Havel's play The Garden Party um, about a year ago. But before we get to that, and it's a great interview, and you should listen to it, but before, a very, very special guest, a blast from my past, a blast from before the days when podcasts were cool, um, my my comrade, which perhaps is appropriate for today, uh, Mr. Jeffrey Graves. Jeff, hello. What up, John? Um, it is good to be back podcasting with you, my friends. Um, Listen, uh, John's podcast audience, I'd like to tell you a little story. Uh, back in, gosh, 2007-ish, um, I, there was this guy in my class who uh, was, you know, seemed like brilliant. Kind, of, and, uh, kind of a brilliant dude, and, um, you know, we got to be friends and whatever, and all of a sudden I'm like, hey man, I've got this great idea. Let's do a podcast slash radio show at KVDU at the University of Denver about politics. And for the next three-plus years, John and I recorded some of the most brilliant material that has ever been recorded in the history of mankind. That thankfully is quasi-difficult to find (laughs) on the internet currently. It is currently difficult to find. Um, I looked the other day, Jeff, not as hard as I would like. (laughs) You guys should all go back and listen to those episodes. Uh, There are rap battles... There are interviews with now influential political leaders. Uh, we pranked called sure. the White House at one point. No, I don't. We did. Um, I adopted a pseudo name for about eight months. Yeah, um, <laughs> very tricky. It was great. It was good times. And uh, I just like to let you guys know that uh, I was John's first podcast partner. It's so. true. So B and Rachel are jealous. Of what's happening right now on the Always Already podcast, um, I've discussed it with them. We'll process. We'll talk it out some more later. Um, but for now, you're going to get you're going to get Jeffrey Graves and I, Jeffrey Graves Esquire, who I might refer to as Jeffrey Graves Esquire. That's on right. And on. I am an attorney. I am not uh, an intellectual bourgeoisie. Uh, Ivory Towerites, sure. like John and uh, his other cohorts, so and probably you, everyone else who's listening. To this for show. now, at least. Jeff's not giving legal advice. I might ask him to give legal advice later. He'll probably deny me, but we can try. Speaking of legal advice, we're bringing back our most popular segment of our other show, which is The Devil's Advocate. Yes. Whereupon one of us, and John has informed me that it's me, 
will take a ridiculous position related to something we're talking about. And have to defend it. Yeah. And So um, Jeff's perfectly trained for that. Absolutely. Um, so there's some other things that we may, I don't remember what exactly we did on those podcasts of yore, but if we remember, we'll bring them into this show we too. We might do a rap battle. You don't know we won't yeah. do a rap battle, so you have to stay point. tuned all the way to the end. And thankfully, I'm in control of all the editing in this situation, so if Jeff decides to stage a rap battle, and I wanted later on, that's Jeff actually beatboxing for the record. Bus of Havel. That's wonderful. So yeah. you hopefully have more of that to look forward to. <laughs> um, so for today's podcast, we're talking about uh, two excellent pieces of work by Václav Havel. Um, his essay, The Power of the Powerless, and then the play, The Garden Party. Um, so Jeff, I don't know, give us some brilliant, overarching, framing, inaugurating, if you will, uh, point into Vahavala. Perhaps I will be liquidating the inauguration. Well, I might have to liquidate you from the podcast if you don't perform well. I'll liquidate so. you liquidating me from the podcast. This will actually become more relevant here in a minute. Maybe. Um, so, so Václav Havel uh, was, uh, came to prominence back in the 1960s uh, Czechoslovakia under Soviet rule and was originally uh, a playwright. He started out uh, working in a theater back in the early 60s and spent most of his time backstage uh, and eventually wrote with um, great vigor and aplomb a variety of absurdist plays, including The Garden Party, uh, which we'll be discussing here in a second. That was really his first bite at being a dissident in this uh, weird uh, totalitarianistic environment that was the Soviet Union-controlled Czechoslovakia. He wrote an essay, as John described, The Power of the Powerless. And we'll discuss it, I'm sure, in infinite depth. John has a uh, pile of notes sitting next to Jan computer, which I'm very excited to hear about. But uh, to sum it up simplistically, uh, Vaclav Havel uses in The Power of the Powerless the analogy of a greengrocer who's living in Czechoslovakia. And the greengrocer, every morning, places in his window, along with the fresh produce, a sign that says, Workers of the World Unite. And uh, Václav Havel analyzes why this worker, who in all likelihood doesn't care whether or not the workers of the world unite, and probably doesn't really give it much thought, places this sign in his window, and what the reasons for doing that are. And uh, the conclusion that he arrives to, really at a a 30,000 feet level, is that he is compelled to do it by a systematic ideological pressure to establish this panorama, in the words of Václav Havel, of obedience to this system. Uh, I, in my days of yore, uh, analogize this to the suspension of disbelief that one experiences when you're observing a theatrical performance the same sort of uh, mental trick that the greengrocer is playing when he places this sign in his window and uh, does it as, as a subtle way of acquiescing, um, which we can discuss with greater granularity. Um, so, John, that's, that's really kind of the 30,000-foot sure. view of it. And uh, a big important part of what Vasil Pavel talks about is the role that ideology plays in the motivation of our greengrocer in taking those actions. I mean, this is, I think, a good place to start to inaugurate us, Jeff. 
um, if you will. Stay, stay, stay tuned to the Garden Party discussion, and the sure. use of the Nagabu well, and liquidation will become... I'm just going to throw the Garden Party in from the start, because I think that the analogy that you make between the function of ideology and then the, the suspension of disbelief of the audience member in the theater is really important in the sense that, you know, not in the explicit terms, but... You know, ideology induces, I think, for Havel, sort of performance, right? The greengrocer is performing by making sure that the Workers of the World Unite sign is hanging in the window of their store. Um, and whether or not he believes it is somewhat irrelevant. And Havel says he probably doesn't have any strong conviction for it. But what does happen is the fact that, you know, the greengrocer and any number of other businesses or shopkeepers or whatever throughout that that kind of accumulation of performing, regardless of the conviction or lack thereof, right, produces effects in reality. In the words of Mr. Havel, uh, this performance creates a world of appearances, a mere ritual, a formalized language derived of semantic deprived of semantic contact with reality and transformed into a system of ritual signs that replace reality with pseudo-reality. I mean, this is... And I like that at the end, that's actually a different translation than the one I was working on, and that's a better translation of that particular phrase because I prefer pseudo-reality to thinking of it in terms of appearance, right? Because these performances of all the greengrocers and shopkeepers and clerks and so on and so forth still constitutes a kind of reality. Yeah, it does. And I, I... I think that you can't you can't take away the realness of what happens in that sort of society um, because it, it is real in the sense that you it, it's real to, to extend the analogy I was making earlier it's real in the sense that when you're sitting in the seats of a theater observing a performance let's say Romeo and Juliet right uh, you have suspended your disbelief to the point that when Romeo awakes to find Juliet dead, or I guess vice versa, shaking him like Shakespeare. Uh, when, when the lovers kill themselves, you feel legitimate, real, sad emotions. You've, you are invested in what's happening on that stage, even though, like, from a, an objective standpoint, it is not real. So the performance, qua the performance, has an impact, and in the terms of the, the government that was oppressing the Czechoslovakian people, that impact was extremely real in the sense that it legitimately oppressed them. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the, I think, the very insightful things that Havel does, is that he's constantly able to kind of work back and forth between the level of everyday experience and reality and kind of the broader level of, you know, as he'll refer to kind of the, well, he calls it post-totalitarian system, is kind of this automaton, right? So he's, I think he's really adept at thinking about the ways that these everyday practices, um, you know, extend or continue and become cogs of some sort of, you know, much, much, much broader, more uh, overarching system without losing sight of the fact that for the people involved, those are very much real everyday practices. Right. The, the conclusion, well, not the conclusion, but really the, I would argue, the intellectual finale of Power and the Powerless comes when uh, Václav Havel postulates what would happen to this greengrocer if he stops putting the sign in his window. And... Um, he argues that at that point, he rejects the ritual and breaks the rules of the game, 
Um, again, extending the analogy of this game, this performance, uh, which we'll tie into the garden party here in a second. But in that revolt, the green grocer attempts to, quote, live within the truth, um, which is an interesting phrase, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, living within the truth. I don't know if that's, I don't know, I don't know what your take on that particular verbiage was. I want to come back to this issue of truth. Okay. This is, this is probably where Havel and I start to diverge more so when he gets, comes to this issue of truth. Um, but let's, even before we get to the part where the green grocer stops putting the sign in the window, I mean, I think that, I want to think a little bit more about his concept of ideology, um, and what that concept of ideology is doing, and that, you know, he is turning it to the realm of practice and discourse more so than belief, which mm-hmm. I think is nice, um, Jeff, I wanted to ask you kind of to what extent you think his analysis of ideology actually speaks to us now, if at all. Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's something I was thinking about revisiting this. Um, There are de facto, and I don't know, John, if you'll quibble with me on this point, but I would argue there are probably not that many day-to-day similarities with the life that the average American... There will be quibbling. There will be quibbling. That the average American citizen lives in the the world that Václav Havel was writing in back in the 60s through the 80s. Um, However, I do think that as a broader concept, the notion of ideology and uh, sort of acceptance of that ideology as a, uh, a, let's say, a ticket of admission into Mm. a particular um, game, to use Havel's language, the fact that... You have to buy in to what's happening, and in, in, in the United States, we do that in a lot of different ways. Um, I, I think that it's very much relevant. Um, it's a different problem that we face mm-hmm. currently, but ideology as that suspension of disbelief to participate in this consensual agreement that we call the uh, political sphere is something that's very much uh, in action today, and I, you, you could argue, has been in action since the dawn of time. Right, and this is, I, mean, I don't know, and this is, I think, Havel in a kind of twisted sort of Marxist way, right? Because there's... Wait, wait, John, are you telling me you're going to make a twisted uh, Marxist point? I've never done such a thing, Jeff. I don't know why you would. You, yeah, you would on, on the other me. show, we'd be talking about, like, sandpaper, and John would be like, it's like the communism. I'd be like, So, I mean, the audience should probably know, Jeff, that, I mean, the roles that we actually probably didn't need to, you know, take on and take off for the podcast so much was that Jeff was, you know, the quote-unquote sensible, you know... Practical progressive. Practical, I think that's what he called himself. I may have used other terms at various points in this old podcast. Yeah, uh, apologist, hypocrite. Uh, you know, wash like, the blood off your hands. Yeah, something uh, like you know, that. Of and you know, I was, I was the, I was the, you know, the kind of political orientation that you, the always already podcast listener, have come to love and enjoy. So yeah. you can imagine how that went. Who, what are the political affiliations of your other co-hosts? Uh, they're probably about similar to me. So where's the argument, John? Where's the dissent? The argument, Jeff. You. Where's the thesis, the antithesis, okay. and the synthesis? First man? of all, Jeff, I'm a little upset that you just demonstrated to the listeners that you've never listened to an episode of the Always Already Podcast. No, I have. It's just only a couple. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a couple? You apologist. You Jeffrey Graves apologist. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's get back to the matter. I, I was going to make some point about You're Havel make a and Marx. Hobble, Marx. Okay, so, so here's the thing. is that, I, you know, one of the other things that 
Havel's doing in this essay in interesting ways, I think, is kind of reappropriating certain Marxist categories or movements. Um, you know, the Havel's notion of ideology is not entirely dissimilar from Marx's concept of ideology. It's absolutely not the same, and there are substantial differences. Um, but also in kind of the scale and approach in the way that Havel's thinking about things, there are certain kind of very Marxist moments. So in section six of the essay, um, he talks about the kind of particular political conditions and ideological conditions and symbolic conditions and so on of Czechoslovakia, uh, is a result of some sort of historical encounter between dictatorship and consumer society, right? So there's some sort of kind of broader dialectical clash that's going on. Yes, I, I disagree, though, to the extent that he necessarily adopts those ideas. And okay. I, I think that you could, I mean, you see, you see Marxist elements in here, but I wonder how much of that is the society that he's living in, having this stuff sort of preached to him in Soviet Czechoslovakia and how much of those terms make their way into the essay as a way to contrast uh, certain points as opposed to things that he's really adopting. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question because I tend to come, you know, down not knowing Hobble very well, admittedly, right, but come down in that given the, the context of the essay where he's consistently, you know, in not quite his words, but I think he, you know, he'd be okay with me calling it, you know, demystifying ideological constructs or something like that, that I think that he would realize if, or, you know, that I think that there's a very purposeful use of the Marxist elements or potential or, like, nascent Marxist elements, and that it's not just him, like, you know, regurgitating what's been ideologically or conceptually fed to him, yeah. you know, and it may just be a practical use, right? That like, you know, setting up a quasi-dialectical, like, you know, the problem of post-totalitarian societies is dictatorship plus consumer society, right? Which is a kind of very crude Marxist formulation, you know, dialectical formulation, probably better is, is better than Marxist. Yeah, well, let, let me make a point yeah. using a quote from the Garden Party. Oh, yeah, this is a good transition this. here. But What page are um, we on, Jeff? I'm we on like page, page numbers in this podcast. Page 21 okay. of the Garden Party and Other Plays, uh, Grove. Grove Press. All right. Uh, it's a great book. Also read the memorandum. I don't think we'll have time to talk about it, but... Um, Slash, I haven't read it. You see, so, you, so I guess before we talk too in-depth about the Garden Party, just briefly what it's about... Uh, it tracks a, it arguably tracks this guy named Hugo, who starts out in this family setting. Nice, arguably. Um, nice, arguably, right. And he uh, eventually, using this absurdist theater, this this great sort of rhythmic technique, this eventual, uh, all of this like weird bureaucratic speak, eventually like goes to this garden party looking to become involved with, uh, uh, with something to get some sort of job. And then he eventually through this absurd sequence of events, becomes essentially in charge of what's happening and then returns back home and confronts his family, who don't even recognize Hugo anymore. Um, so that's a real 30,000-feet view. But page 21, uh, you see, I think, an example of Havel poking fun at Marxist oh, sort of speak. And he does this throughout, but what the specific paragraph that uh, came to mind is uh, a uh, little... Uh, quote by a, a character named Falk, 
Mind you, it's a good time that you're inflamed by the question of technology, but at the same time, you mustn't sort of one-sidedly overrate technology and so sink into perilous technicism, with changes, which changes man into a mechanical cog in the dehumanized world of a, spiritual, a spiritless civilization, as if we didn't have a whole damned heap of burning problems in matters of art. So this is just kind of the, the, an example of the type of, di- of the type of dialogue they're uh, using in the play. And let's, I mean, to give some flavor, both of Havel's brilliant language and what I think is a really excellent translation, because while I certainly don't read Czech in English, this play still reads brilliantly yeah. um, in this translation. But the, here's Falk's a uh, few lines earlier. Mind you, it's good that you're inflamed by the question of art, but at the same time, you mustn't sort of one-sidedly overrate art and so sink into unhealthy aestheticism, profoundly hostile to the spirit of our garden parties, as if we didn't have in technology a whole damned heap of burning problems, right? right? So certainly one of the things that Havel's doing in the garden party is just like, you know, on one level it's all about terrible, bad, uh, Soviet-style crude Marxist, crude dialectics. Right, and I, I And think, the emptiness of all of that. Absolutely, and, I, I, and I, I'm not prepared, nor am I necessarily going to uh, confront John head to head on Marxist oh, let's do it. ideology because maybe in Devil's Advocate that's what I do because <laughs> I obviously don't know enough. But what you see reflected here is exactly what John said. This like kind of um, at the level that an American school child would be taught about the Constitution, like that sort of same level of understanding of this ideology as told to people living within this oppressive regime about Marxism. Um, and that's one of the things that comes out in the Garden Party. Since we're talking about the Garden Party, yes. um, what I really find fascinating about, well, there's a lot of things I really love about this play, um, but probably my favorite scene is the point at which Hugo, this guy who starts out as this, like, a prodigal son from this family who goes off to the garden party, and the character named the director, who's presumably in charge of something. They, they have this moment where they're uh, sort of ships passing in the night, where Hugo is becoming the director, and the director is sort of losing status to Hugo through this uh, complicated, almost word battle. And throughout and throughout the play, Pavel uses this analogy of chess. Uh, I think really did kind of yep. hit us over the head with the notion that this is a game, right? Not only the notion of chess, but that the play opens with Hugo playing chess against himself. Right. In the final scene, he has this long monologue where he he really parrots back a majority of the absurd, absurd phrases we've heard throughout mm-hmm. the play, and at the very end proclaims checkmate and marches off stage. Right. Um, and so, kind of, you know, tying it back to Power of the Powerless. Yeah, let's go do, go do that, Jack. You see this, this game that Havel's talking about being played out. And in The Power of the Powerless, he talks about uh, the people who get more and more into leadership positions, right? Like, so you go beyond the greengrocer into people who have power in the party, into people who are actually leading the party. They have to sort of surrender more and more of this cognitive dissonance in order to actually do it. And, and you and you see this you see Hugo who starts out uh, arriving at this party, this garden party, right? And he's like, well, why is this why aren't we using this large dance floor? We've got this large dance floor. He's like making sense. And then all of these denizens come in and start 
parroting this weird crap at him. And there's a point in that first scene where he starts saying... We have an explicit rating. You can say stronger words than crap if you like, All Jeffrey. that fucked up shit. Uh, and he starts, he starts repeating it to himself and internalizing it. And then he starts using it offensively. And uses it offensively against the clerk. And then he ends up going to the director and he becomes better at it. And he starts using more and more of this crazy speak until there's a point where Hugo and the director are talking as if they're the same person. They use we, like, in, a, in, in such a way that they replace all the pronouns of I and you with we. Um, so, I, to me, it really, it really kind of... It, it meshes well with Power of the Powerless, because we see this game in action, mm-hmm. and we see how absurd it is, and how it's played, and how it's utterly meaningless. Utterly meaningless, but at the same time very powerful, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, you know... Again, one of the great insights of what Havel's doing and what we read of him today, that, you know, if we take Hugo's instance in the Garden Party, right, that he's parroting and reforming and reconstituting and redeploying all these essentially meaningless phrases, right, that are all kind of, you know, form without any content to them or any meaningful content to them. But in doing so, right, he achieves something like power, right? He becomes, you know, the director, I, I, you know, and I can't remember now the point. He's like the director of the liquidation of the inaugurators. Is that correct? Yeah, John, let's do a little reading here. Okay, do you have a page? Yeah, page 35. Page 35. John and I are going to read. Do you want to be the director or Hugo? Um, I clearly want to be the director because I'm probably more closely uh, Soviet bureaucrat than you. All right, uh, then... So I'll be Hugo, okay, and we're going to start at the page 35, and we're going to read into halfway down 36. All right, I have okay. one disclaimer for the audience. Jeff is actually a thespian. I am not. I, so I think when just Jeff hearing acts the words, me though. out of the water, um, you know, that's why. I think hearing the words uh, really kind of hit this, hit this, uh, hit this home here. Um, so this is when, uh, I think, after Hugo has... A, a, taken the status away from the director. Sure. This is after the point where they're talking together. Hugo now has more of the power. Okay. You want to try you want to try me out first, eh? And what am I supposed to inaugurate? What? Well, you know what. No, what? The liquidation. The liquidation of what? Of the inauguration service, of course. Christ, a bloody genius thought up that one. Obviously, it's loaded with booby traps. But I won't be booby-trapped, you know. Oh? I won't. Well, who's going to inaugurate it? Who? Well, surely the responsible inaugurator. The responsible inaugurator, but the inaugurators can't inaugurate when they are being liquidated, can they? Right. That's why it ought to be inaugurated by the responsible liquidation officer. The responsible liquidation officer, but the job of liquidation officers to liquidate. Not to inaugurate. Right, that's why it'll be necessary to organize special inaugurational training of liquidation officers. Oh. Or, rather, a liquidational training of inaugurators. Well, you ought to know that. Best if both trainings were organized at the same time. Inaugurators will be trained in liquidation officers, while liquidation officers will be trained training inaugurators. And will it then be inaugurated by a liquidation officer trained by an inaugurator, or by an inaugurator trained by a liquidation officer? Another training will have to be organized. Inaugurationally trained liquidation officers training liquidationally trained inaugurators and liquidationally trained inaugurators training inaugurationally trained liquidation officers. And it will then be inaugurated by a liquidationally trained inaugurator trained by an inaugurationally trained liquidation officer, or by an inaugurationally trained liquidation officer trained by a liquidationally trained inaugurator. By the latter, of course. I see you've thought the matter through to the end, in theory, but in practice we're faced with the necessity to act. I want to get to bed as soon as possible. Besides, the liquidation of the inauguration service will be no problem. I mean it. My papers are all in order, and letter A is already finished. So there you go. There, I think, is a good example of the 
just I, I don't know. I mean, it's it, you. The traditional word is absurdist, but it's this weird rhythmic nonsense that, in my view, Havel uses to display the absurdity of the uh, of the price of admission to this mm-hmm. world. Um, the memorandum, the next play in this book, is another good example of that, where they literally start talking. Um, in just absolute nonsense. Like, they don't even make sense. Uh, and the whole idea is that they've created this language that is just utter nonsense. Yeah, I mean, and so not only is, you know, he demonstrating the absurdity of these languages that we're using, but I think there's also, you know, you said that it's that it's the rhythm of what's going on. And I think that that, you know, the kind of, as I reflected on the play in relation to power and the powerless, you know, to me, the kind of rhythm that I imagine the, you know, actors performing this play get into, or, you know, when I saw the performance directed by Sarah Lyons that you'll hear about um, in a little bit, when I saw that and kind of think back to hearing the cadence of that, you know, kind of, I made the analogy between, you know, Havel putting into the cadence of the play, right, kind of this, the, you know, attraction and the way that one gets caught up in it. Mm-hmm. And so the analogy I made is between that and then kind of the everyday practices that, you know, he's talking about in the power of the powerless, right? So that, you know, the greengrocer putting in the sign, you know, having the sign in his window, you know, regardless of whether or not he believes it, is in some ways to me analogous to the fact that one gets so caught up in just doing the cadence of the garden party, right? And that both of those speak to you know, the way that these particular practices may be in many ways meaningless, right, but have such power and such effects. It works only as long as people are willing to live within the lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that sums it up nicely. I mean, it, it, in the garden party, you see these characters who are talking nonsense to each other, but are trying to essentially keep a straight face and talk more nonsense to the other person than the person is talking nonsense to them um, to perpetuate the nonsense that is eventually very good for Hugo. I mean, he ends up in control of uh, a something. Right. And then, you know, and this, and this goes back to why I said you had a nice arguably like 10 minutes ago, because, you know, in the process he becomes unrecognizable. So there's kind of the question of, you know, to, you know, to what extent, or does one completely lose one's identity? And we get into this question of identity in my conversation with Sarah, um, later on in the show, right? But to what extent then is Hugo's success predicated upon a total loss of his identity, right? Or a total loss of, you know, something like his essential humanity that is kind of a somewhat slippery concept, but an interesting one that's at play in Power of the Powerless. Yeah, and I, I think it's also interesting to note that when Hugh... So, at, so after he goes and takes over this department of some variety, he goes back to, this, uh, to, the, to his house where he starts to play with his mother and father. And not only do his mother and father not recognize him, but he does not appear to recognize right. his mother and father. At the very least, that's left hanging. Yeah, I mean, because he, he talks about, he like he asks questions about their son, right. Hugo. And, I mean, I guess you could, you could make the argument that he's messing with them, but it strikes me is that um, he has become this different person to the point where he doesn't even recognize where he came from. Yeah. So I want to kind of think about this in terms of the notion of power that Havel is kind of promulgating, particularly in Power of the Powerless, and then that gets, I think, you know, displayed and rendered in very, you know, very, I don't know what the word for, kind of 
joyful but also very biting ways in the garden party and i you know i think it's very interesting at points that he talks about how you know the you know something like a totalitarian or post-totalitarian system doesn't isn't just something that's kind of imposed from above and kind of trickles down but it's something that's actually kind of diffuse as he says it permeates society it's something that shapes society and one of the really really interesting things that i think he does with regards to power is that he talks about kind of the distinction between the ruler and the ruled is not something that's again some order from above or not some dividing line between those who have power and those who don't but he talks about that within these kind of regimes of ideology that the dividing line between ruler and ruled is within each person to varying degrees right so everyone is both you know the ruler right the extent to which they perform um the ideology or they perform the symbolic content that then constitutes some sort of ideological reality and at the same time is being ruled by that which they are creating yeah i mean i and I think it's important here to separate to separate out, like, I don't want to say theoretical power, but power at the level of uh, the political sphere, let's say, and power on like a practical level, because See, but I think Havel that, recognizes right. that if this green grocer doesn't put out the sign, the he's going to suffer serious consequences, right? Like he does not have the power to take this action and get away with it with impunity but he has the power to shine this light of dissidence on this uh performance that everyone else is conducting by rejecting it so it's not i, I mean i i think that it, when we're talking about the power of the powerless it's not an unlimited practical power right. it's a it's a different kind of power Sure. I mean, and there are certainly, of course, I would go here, there's some similarities, I think, between, like, Havel and Foucault when it comes to power, um, although maybe we won't necessarily get into that. Um, but, I mean, this also then kind of implicates the problem of resistance, right, when Jeff starts to get us there. You know, he says that, you know, we not much like we can't take power at face value or we can't take, you know, the, what the green grocer is doing it's at face value. You know, we also can't kind of read dissent superficially for him either, right? His notion of dissent is actually pretty complicated and complex. You know, and in some ways it seems to me is kind of speaking back to what might be kind of, you know, a facile appropriation of something like dissent or dissidence by Western critics of the Soviets or something like that, right? He doesn't, you know, you know, being a dissident is much more complicated and fraught for him than I think he's pointing to it generally being understood. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I hear you there. And um, it, to me, the most fascinating thing about Havel as dissident is that Havel eventually had to exercise political power. Yes. Um, Havel uh, eventually was the first president, or the, the last president of Czechoslovakia and the first president of the Czech Republic. And so if you look at some of his later writings, um, especially to the castle and back, his, uh, his final major work, it, you see his sort of uh, guilt and this you know, sort of internal tension, the fact that he was this dissident who had the ability to, to make these powerful critiques, but at the same time he ends up wielding power and is it has to make some of these really difficult choices uh it's a it's a you know a fascinating exercise in 
living, having to live out the theory and how effectively you can actually do that. Especially considering the way <clears throat> that he talks about the law later on in The Power of the Powerless, particularly in section 17, and then the way he talks about and critiques, you know, Western parliamentary democracy in section 20. Right, and says that, you know, the answer to the problem of ideology is not Western parliamentary democracy, right? That might be less ideological than living under the Soviets, but that, you know, he says that what we need is the, quote, renewed focus of politics in real people, end quote, and that's something that parliamentary democracy doesn't get. And that while democracy, parliamentary democracy might be something transitional or might be the transitional solution for countries under Soviet rule, right, it's not that that's the only way to guarantee human dignity for him. Right. And in fact, it's probably, you know, he, he, he says this in section 20, he says that um, earlier in section 6, um, he talks about kind of the problems of ideology in section 6, he talks about pro the problems of ideology in, you know, in Czechoslovakia or in, under the Soviets as, you know, he says it's a warning to the uh, West's own quote-unquote latent tendencies. So, I, you know, I don't know enough. I don't know enough about Czechoslovakia and then the Czech Republic in the 90s and 2000s to, you know, really know how, how I'll put this into practice. But that conundrum that you point to is a really fascinating one. Yeah, and he, I mean, he ended up with a something very similar to a Western parliamentary system. Yeah, exactly. And he ended up in a situation where, uh, you know, the, uh, Slovakia wanted to break away from Czechoslovakia, and uh, he didn't want that to happen. And so, you know, he ends up in this, in this very strange, like, emerging, real gritty, actual political battle, right? And, and, and guiding a country that has been oppressed under Soviet rule for decades out of that darkness. Um, and it, it is fascinating to see that he wasn't always able to even himself avoid ideology and avoid some of these very traps that he'd identified. Um, and that's something that in his later writings he struggles with. And um, I forget the name of the last play that he wrote. Uh, it was the, the first, the last couple of years before he died. And the whole thing was about uh, someone leaving power who had been in power and their reflections on mm. that exact dilemma, which is that, you know, the be not breaking any new ground here, right? That, like, it's tough to put this stuff into action. Absolutely. And uh, maybe maybe Havel's right, and this is, you know, parliamentary Western democracy is a stepping stone in the direction of um, something else, and maybe that's where we're at now. But... Uh, I th there are definitely lessons to be learned from from his views of ideology and what and what it requires for someone to have that uh, ticket of admission into the political realm in any society, including uh, something as gruesome as uh, Soviet Czechoslovakia. So, Jeff, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts, um, you know, particularly as Jeffrey Graves Esquire, mm. um, on the way that Havel talks about the law in Power of the Powerless, and the way that it kind of, for him, you know, I don't think this is the only function the law can have, you know, when he's talking about kind of the two primary functions of it, at least in his context, in section 17, you know, but that one of the things that I, the, the legal code for him does, particularly, um, is he says it's like ideology and that it functions as an excuse, right? So that the exercise of power can be wrapped, in this case, in the noble appeal of law. 
Right? So he says, you know, that oftentimes law itself is used in kind of, you know, as he calls it, the total manipulation of society, and that the legal code, um, even if it's formally very, very just, or, you know, provides for avenues for legal redress, or provides for something like trials or whatever, right? That whatever the kind of the formal um, structure of the law may be, that doesn't prevent it from actually being a way to kind of further some sort of repressive use of power. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think, at least, in, at least in my view, what he's saying, and what's he, what he's saying in that section is that the answer is not in a written set of like mm-hmm. codes or regulations, right. right? That you could have a country that had the exact same constitution and laws in the books as the United States, and it could still be run very much like a post-totalitarianistic state. It's really the people uh, enacting it, right, that are giving um, a performance to the text, to extend mm-hmm. that analogy, mm-hmm. that really sort of bring to fruition bring to fruition uh, the, this this uh, exercise of power, right? I mean, the, the words on the page themselves mm-hmm. have no power, right? They, they really don't. I mean, they, it's really the exercise of doing something. With and them. this is consistent, you know, with what we, what we opened the conversation with in terms of, you know, it's not so much the content of the greengrocer, right, the formal, you know, s- semiotic structure of Workers of the World Unite, right? But it's about the everyday practices and discourses and kind of what is constituted on a more material and everyday level from that act. Yeah. Right? And so I think that you're probably right in the way that he talks about law being somewhat similar, right? Because he, he notes that there's this kind of thing that happens that so much um, of what, you know, the dissident movement... Um, couches itself in terms of human rights, in terms of legalistic, you know, focuses on civil and political rights and so on and so forth. So I think that then the way he unpacks, you know, the, perhaps the dangers inherent in any appeal to law is the mechanism for freedom or liberation or something like that um, is also very interesting. Well, and also it's important to keep in mind that Havel had a very, um, not so much in, not so much when he was writing Power of the Powerless, but later in his life, uh, he was imprisoned yes. for... Three years, I, th- I want to say. And he, Several years, yeah. I'm not sure exactly um, was, it, When he was not in prison, he was harassed by, um, you know, by members of the state, by, uh, you know, by policemen, that sort of thing. Um, one of his other great works, Largo Desolato, um, really demonstrates that, the, this sort of uh, harassment of the, the dissident um, by members of the state that eventually drive the dissident into an action, um, which is a, a cool play, so... Um, so Jeff, we often talk about the truth. The truth? The truth for Hobbes. John, you can't handle the truth. I forget what the next line is. I don't know. It's okay. John, you can't handle it though. That's actually true. I can't handle the truth. That's right. Um, so apparently I would be a bad dissident according to Havel. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, the appeal to the truth is complicated, I think, in the way that Havel does it, right? Because, you know, for him, it's living in the truth, right, which exposes the appearance of ideology, or, you know, we could frame, frame it in a number of different ways. You know, what, 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 is, what, what is the truth for him, then? Are, are you going to go think? on Plato on me right now? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking more Foucault, but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, we could do, but, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you think constitutes the truth that one can live in as a resistant act for Havel? Well, I mean, for Havel, it's... I, 
posit whether or not he's really getting at this any notion of like an objective truth. Right, right. I don't think he is because really when I, when I, I don't think, think of Hobbes he is. in you know he's using truth and lie as sort of uh, as sort of a diametric poles, right? That when you're participating in this charade, as the greengrocer is putting this sign in the window, that is living in the lie, right? And when you're not doing that, and you're not art- kind of artificially participating in this charade, at that point, you have begun to live in the truth. So I, I would be curious to know, from someone who speaks Czech, what the word truth mm, mm-hmm. means. Because we have a lot... I mean, truth is a very loaded word in the sure. English language. And I wonder, I wonder to what extent it means it has that same sort of almost religious significance well, in I mean, Czech. I don't know if it apply, I don't know if it applies in the Czech context, right? But in a different Slavic language, so in Russian, which I used to speak some and now I don't speak at all, right? So truth or pravda um, is related to kind of concepts of right. Right, of right. right. Yeah, right. in the sense of like right. Well that doesn't get us any further along. It doesn't. But uh, <laughs> I just made there. was I like just showing off obnoxious. No, Please, that's that no, what well, I was gonna happening. say, but I mean if you're using right, then that's almost more more loaded mm. than mm-hmm. truth. Um you know, but but I think I, to me, power and the powerless, uh really I mean it does it skirts the issue of what the right answer is, as a lot of these critic you know, criticizing texts do, right? He's not Yes. He's not writing a prescription. Absolutely. He's identifying a problem. And I think that there's a point to doing that and that, you know, when he talks in, say, section 15 about actual acts of dissidence or resistance or whatever, you know, he says that the most important, you know, the most important political acts are not necessarily the things that one says are the most political acts, right? So they're actually prescribing one particular form of resistance for him or maybe prescribing one particular form or content of truth for him you know, is actually precludes actual developments of, you know, counter, of things that will counter ideology or counter all these other repressive forces. Yeah, and I mean, you look at how, I mean, you look at how Havel fought back, right? I mean, he fought back using plays. Yes. And uh, one of the things that really pissed Havel off, and he mentions in The Power of the Powerless, was that the government arrested his favorite rock band. Yes. Um, Plastic People Eaters, I think is Something name. like that. Um and so, you know, for Havel, it was, it was you know, writing a, dis- writing a play that criticizes, uh, making a rock song that criticizes. Like, those acts of dissidence are, to him, at least in the context of this lie that people are living, that was living in the truth. Absolutely. And so the, the band was the plastic people of the universe. Plastic people of the universe, who actually played at Havel's 75th birthday just a few years before he died. Oh, I wish I could have been there, Jeff. That would have been great, yeah. Yeah, and I, and, you know, I think you're right to point to the fact that one of the things, you know, feeding into his particular notion of resistance or, or dissidence, right, is the way that he himself performed resistance or dissidence. Yeah. So I want you now to be resistant and dissident, Jeff Graves. It's I'm, time. I'm going to resist. And no, no, it's, I don't know. You're, I forget how this works exactly, but hold all on, I know... It, we're going we're gonna to do it like the old days, right? I don't know. What, what did we do in the old it's days? It's time Jeff? for Devil's Advocate. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember. Guys, so. guys, listeners of the podcast, if, um, if you really want more of this... There are hundreds of hours of John and I. <laughs> Literally hundreds of hours. <laughs> we did this podcast for three and a half or four years. There's like at least a hundred episodes. 
Definitely more than that. Um, um, so, so you could you could really just like you know sure. how you go how some people go on Netflix binges with The Office or like you know Parks and yeah. Rats. I mean, I had a friend on who posted on Facebook that said he listened to nine hours of Serial. I think instead of nine hours of Serial, you should listen to nine hours of the unnamed previous show that Jeff and I did. Or even better, you should go listen to nine more hours of the Always Already podcast. I actually no don't offense, even know Jeff. how you would go about finding our old episodes. Um, I, I have some ideas, but okay. I'm not going to share. All right, fair enough. And I also was speaking to a mutual friend of ours who said he has archives of all of them. Oh, very good. So perfect black ball, black yes. ball material. Uh, so. so Jeff's more likely to need a career in public than I am. So <laughs> it's ultimately and uneven. Uh, it's not quite mutually assured. No, that's right. Um, that's but anyway, right. so Jeff, it's time for Devil's Advocate, okay. which is an old segment we're bringing back. Yeah. And so you, in some form, on the side of the devil, have to argue against some aspect of what Havel is doing. Okay. Um, well, I would argue, John, that... Uh, Jeff, Jeff just put his lawyer, his attorney voice on. I did. I would, I would argue, John. Hold on, I'm putting on my glasses. Uh-oh. That, Uh-oh. Um, Straighten your tie, Jeff. The the best system of government is the one that most restricts restricts individual freedom and requires people to conform to set guidelines that regulate human behavior in such a way that uh, the society itself is progressed. Now, uh, a good example of that would be something like global warming. A totalitarianistic society is the best equipped to deal with a problem like that, a giant collective action problem, because through the use of effective ideology and force, we can force every individual to cut their carbon emissions to a point that we will all not eventually die. Oh, the devil just won, y'all. What? No, no, of course no, no, Jeff. Okay, here's the problem, Jeffrey. Uh, with what you devil, excuse me, excuse me, Lucifer. Yeah, um, your excuse. Thank you. Good. Don't you dare have an independent thought, though. Otherwise, I'll press you. <laughs> I mean, that may be accurate on some sort of instrumental level, right? But one of the things that Hobble is arguing, devil, um, is that there's something about essential human freedom or essential human dignity, right, that is invariably oppressed in such a system as you propose. And that that is ultimately a more important or more valuable or kind of a primary sort of articulation more so than whatever amazing instrumental effects may flow from this sort of dystopia uh, hold you on, prescribe. Hold on there, John. Hold on. What, what you're saying, the, the, the notion of human dignity and respect, those are luxuries afforded to academics who live in the first world, <laughs> oh. who live in the first world and eat delicious food and drink clean, purified water. My point is that for humanity as a whole to survive, we'll, we will need at some point, eventually, to uh, put everyone into a tightly regulated, uh, controlled environment where their activities as a collective are dictated by a master plan. The alternative to that is chaos, war, and the eventual destruction of the earth. Now, <laughs> the people who are feeling this most acutely right now are the people who are, are you know, dying of starvation in Africa. Um, but the bottom line, John, is that unless we can find a way to fully effectuate our ideology, and, and perhaps the way to do this is to perfect ideology to oh. a point where we, oh. we can not only regulate people's activities, but we can in the highest sense of leadership, convince them that they are acting in this regulated way themselves. 
the greatest trick the <laughs> devil ever pulled, John, was convincing you that he did not exist. Oh. Argue with that. I can't. Clearly, the devil has won. Clearly, I am out of practice in arguing against the devil. Or maybe, he has John. not visited me. Maybe, John. Maybe. Maybe what we're doing right now is we're living in post, post-totalitarianism, where we are still being repressed in such a way that we actually think we are not being repressed. Which makes it even better than regular old <laughs> post-totalitarianism. What do you say, John? I say that's a great note to temporarily end on. All right. Jeffrey Graves, Esquire. Right. Now, are you marching me out of here, John? No, not yet. Okay. You're going to come back for the segment that you don't know exists because you don't listen to the podcast. Okay. But before that, you're going to hear an interview with myself and Sarah Lyons that is really excellent and is going to delve a lot into uh, what's going on in the Garden Party and kind of the broader um, conceptual and philosophical and political how long questions you, how long therein. Is John? Uh, it is long enough so that you can listen to it on one drive to work. Okay. Well, have fun, everyone. Joining us now is Sarah Lyons, who is a theater artist and director in New York City and a self-described gender junkie. Sarah, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so, you know, one of the reasons we had you on is that you were involved in a production of The Garden Party about a year ago, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was in the fall of 2013, so a little more than a year ago. Okay. Um, I wonder if you could maybe start by talking about how you got involved in that particular production, mm-hmm. and then maybe mm-hmm. kind of what drew you to the play. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. So uh, the production was produced by an indie company in Brooklyn called Organs of State, who I've worked with before, and uh, know I know the, the folks who run the company very well. Um, and the kind of artistic director of the company was interested in work, working on the garden party for a variety of reasons. One, he just happens to be a total Czech Republic history dork. Okay. Uh, it's like his, it's a kind of one of his like pet things that he's really interested in. He studied abroad in Prague when he was in college and knows a lot about it. Um, so uh so he he I think already knew a lot about Havel going into going into the project as a result of that. Um and uh but really really he was first drawn to the play because um it was written in the fifties. It was Havel's first play. He was very young, he wrote it as a young man. Um and but the but the story in it, which is basically uh commenting on how powerful social structures are in terms of shaping human human identity mm-hmm. um, in ways that can be really destructive and kind of like takes a wider view and says like, well, these social structures are things that were built by humans in the first place and are actually very flimsy. Um, so if you're clever enough, you can, you can kind of uh, intercept them. Right. Um, uh, so he really felt that, that story was uh, was still very relevant, which I think which I think it is. Um, and I think the challenge, one of the biggest challenges with it, was kind of 
uh, working with all of the all of the kind of Czech specific, Prague specific, moment specific, uh, you know, identifiers in the play, so that the audience could really kind of move past that and and really understand why we were doing this, as opposed to it just being a kind of Czech history lesson and the audience having to work really hard to keep up. Sure. Now, what were kind of yeah. some of the particular directorial choices that you made to try to speak to these broader concerns about social structures that shape identity and practices and perhaps their um, kind of vulnerability or flimsiness, as you said? Um, I tried to move the play a a little bit outside of the kind of given circumstances of the actual story, which is like, you know, a family, a kind of like working class family in Prague have big dreams for their young son. So they send him off to meet with a mysterious man who will supposedly give him advice or clout or get him a job or, you know, something like Mm -hmm. this. Um, And then the boy, uh, the boy, ends up in the course of an evening rising to the very top of of some, you know, totally unnamed, uh, you know, it could be anything, this, like, company or organization that he, you know, it's never, you never really understand what they do and it doesn't matter. Um, but he, like, kind of rises to the top of it and takes everybody down in his wake just by mirroring the actions of the people that he meets along the way. And by doing that, that everybody assumes that he's more powerful than they are. Um, and so they kind of like let him in. Um, so anyway, I tried to, I tried to take those ideas and make them a little bit broader. So I was thinking about how identity is very slippery. Um, and that's a lot of what the play is about. So kind of trying to map those ideas out, but just on the bodies of the actors that I had in the space. Um, and just kind of tell the story of like something being built up and then kind of being broken down or being intercepted by this, um, by this like young, clever person, um, as opposed to it really being grounded in, you know, in the moment in time in which it was written. Um, so that was one thing that, uh, that we did. Um, I mean, cause it strikes I, me as a very yeah. difficult play to direct and a difficult play to act, not yeah. only because of kind of the particular, you know, Czech fifties and broader circumstances as well, but also just yeah. because of the dialogue, the cadences, it seems to me almost mm-hmm. of the play. And I mean, when I saw the play, I thought mm-hmm. that was pulled off very successfully and especially kind of going back and rereading the garden party a couple of days ago, you know, I kind of regained an appreciation of how hard it must have been, how challenging for you and for the actors to kind of pull it off in a way that was both mm-hmm. true to, I mean, the, the humor, the intense critique, the dialogue, all of it, you know, of the words of Havel himself. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if maybe mm-hmm. you could talk a little bit about the process of you and the actors working together to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very intense. Um, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that you were able to stay with it when you saw it, because I even have moments as a director where I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm not sure what's happening here. Um, and it's really maybe the only play that I've ever worked on where I was very explicit during the rehearsal process with the actors being like, I am not much further ahead than you are <laughs> on this language right now, because it is so hard. And that's, you know, largely it was a workshop when we did it because we were we were all kind of feeling like we have to just like try this once mm-hmm. and see if we can even like bite into this at all. Um, but yeah, but we really had uh, the, we really had to 
I mean, we could spend, you know, hours on a single page of text kind of dissecting what it means because Havel makes up a lot of language. He makes up a lot of titles um, and things that don't really make any sense. And the style of the play is, uh, it's a farce. It's very, uh, there's a, it's very in, influenced by clowning traditions, um, and uh, so much of his commentary about the social world um, that exists within the play, and you know that existed in real life, and we would argue exists still now, um, is about the kind of is about the language itself and how words, you know, people speaking words unto an object or unto a person you know, endows that object or that person with meaning or with uh, strength or power and all of these things. And, and at the really same time to... constitutes themselves in their performance of that language, right? Which is... Yes, absolutely. It puts themselves in relation to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so the language is really, you know, and again, going back, like we didn't, I didn't really feel like we needed to like ground this play, like in a home mm -hmm. in Czechoslovakia at the moment when it was written, even though that's when it takes place, because really it's about how language constructs things and how, and how people's actions uh, and mirroring one another constructs entire social systems that oppress and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so really the majority of our rehearsing was, was around the language and we were, you know, up on our feet and playing and doing all of those things too. But, um, but probably 75% of the work was just unpacking the language and kind of getting it to a place where the actors could just say the words mm -hmm. <laughs> even. Um, yeah. I mean, was there a particular scene or a particular moment that you <laughs> or you and the actors, I mean, found particularly challenging or particularly interesting or kind of particularly uh -huh. getting at you know, the ways that language and practices construct these structures. Yeah. Well, as uh, Hugo, who is the kind of our hero of the play, mm -hmm. um, it uses the kind of like prodigal son um, storytelling trope to tell the story, which is, you know, we'll like bookmark that for the gender discussion in a second. Yes. Um, uh, so as he gets hot deeper into the world that he's just kind of like faking his way into. Um, and as he gets higher and higher up on the social ladder, we all found in rehearsal that the language got more and more esoteric mm -hmm. and the kind of like mechanics of the actual story in terms of like, who is this person? Where are they? What is their relationship? All of those things became more and more obscured to us. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a question is like, is that, was that, you know, just because Havel was a young writer and there are some things that are less clear in the play, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, that's kind of a thing that happens with young writing is like, you start off really strong with a great idea, but then once the story kind of takes off and you really have to make something happen, it gets a lot harder um, than that like initial idea. Um, so that's one thing. And, and I, um, and then there's also, you know, another way to look at it that's like, the deeper that Hugo gets into this world, um, the more challenging the kind of task at hand is for him and also for us. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, yeah. in, that, in that sense, I mean, did you all have any idea of, I mean, are, is the audience complicit in Hugo's rise? Is the audience mm -hmm. complicit in kind mm -hmm. of the 
empty discursive forms that keep getting circulated throughout the play. And, you know, as you say, Mm -hmm. in some ways get more esoteric as the play goes on. I mean, what's kind of in your mind or what you and the actors were trying to do, the relationship between the audience and what was going on? I mean, in a black black box theater with with the audience on all four sides, if I remember correctly. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was in the round, which was very, I mean, which is, often important to me as a director, but I think with this piece in particular, um, because uh, the play starts off, you know, in the first scene, you could kind of see this play and be like, oh, this is a really fun farce, and we're just going to sit back and relax, and it's going to be really funny and weird, and kind of be taken on this story. Um, But by the last scene, what happens in the last scene is Hugo comes back to his parents' home, which he left in the first scene, um, and they don't recognize him, even though he looks physically exactly the same, because he's carrying himself differently, and because he's had this, you know, he's kind of risen to the top of this chain. Um, So he literally comes in, and his own parents don't recognize him. And then... uh, and uh, the play ends with Hugo giving this kind of very heartbreaking speech that is quite literally meaningless because mm-hmm. his parents and you know end up asking him. I don't remember the exact language, but it's it's something along the lines of just who are you? Um, and Hugo cannot answer the question. Um, his identity has become so manipulated by everything around him, and he's and he's been so reinforced in his like activity of just mirroring everything he sees around him that he can't answer a kind of like solid grounded question just about who he is Mm -hmm. in the world. Um, So he delivers this very long monologue, which is this kind of toward a force of language of like, you know, what is anything really? And who, who is me? If me is you and you is me. And it's kind of very, this very long thing like that. Um, And the way that we staged that monologue is uh, I had multiple actors playing Hugo throughout Mm -hmm. the play. Um, And by the, the actor who started out as Hugo in the beginning of that scene started the monologue. And then the other three actors kind of filtered in as it went along and they ended up all delivering it and completely breaking down the physical space of the home of Hugo's parents. Um, The, after he delivers that monologue, the very final moments are kind of Hugo's parents waiting for like the next wave of political and cultural force to kind of come in to their home and sweep them away and tell them where they belong in the world, essentially. Um, So we left that in a very blank, totally deconstructed space. Um, And the audience is sitting all around them and uh, the audience can see one another throughout the whole piece. So the idea was kind of that the audience, that that's kind of a moment then for the audience to look at themselves and be like, where, where do we fit in in this? Are we going to like, are we being also being just swept along with whatever the political or cultural force of the moment is in our lives? Or do we really know who we are as individuals? Okay. I want to get to that question you just asked, but before that, maybe smaller question, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll let you decide. But so all of us, when we entered the theater, were handed Mm -hmm. little red clown noses. Um, uh-huh. So I was wondering if you could talk about that particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so the uh, so the clown noses are actually written into the script. It's not written in that um, that the audience gets them necessarily right. when they walk into the space, but they are. It is you know we we use them in the scenes, and it, it, that is actually in the script mm-hmm. um, because Hugo uh, 
Hugo, you know, gets into this uh, political system by attending uh, an annual garden party, which is kind of, you know, which is supposed to be like a fun event. And all of these, a lot of the people he meets along the way are wearing, in the script, it's called a gay nose, but anyway, I'll just giggle about that myself. Um, (laughs) But they're wearing, you know, clown noses because they're silly. And that's kind of part of the clown nose becomes this very funny kind of, um, exchange of power in some of the scenes where he like kind of grabs somebody else's nose and puts it on. And all of a sudden the other person is afraid of him. Um, and it's very real in the moment, but then if you kind of step back, it's like they're wearing a clown nose. That's ridiculous. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so we really wanted to just invite the audience into that world. Um, and, uh, have them, you know, we wanted, we wanted, we wanted the, the whole feeling of the evening to really feel like an experience mm-hmm. um, at, and kind of a journey itself, as opposed to just like sitting back and watching a play. So that was kind of one of the ways, one of the ways that we did that. Um, and definitely also invites the audience to like play with putting on or taking off a little marker of identity themselves uh, when they walk into the space. Sure. Now, I mean, to get to, you know, the kind of broader question that you pose, I was wondering if maybe you could elaborate a little and, you know, you've, talked about this already in terms of, you know, asking the audience to think about the ways that, you know, social structures are working on or against or whatever proposition we want for people's identities um, and thinking about kind of the role of language and practices in that. But I'm wondering if you could perhaps expand a little bit on kind of what you understood the politics of doing this play in a contemporary setting to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I struggled with that personally some actually, um, and because uh, because I am such because I am so invested in doing explicitly feminist work mm-hmm. um, as a you know for me personally, um, while I am you know excuse me, um, I'm very you know invested and interested in the kind of politics more broadly of this play in terms of thinking about capitalism and, um, you know, systemic oppression and identity and all of these things. Um, I'm, you know, was very interested in doing the play for that, for those reasons. Um, but it's not an, it's not a feminist piece of work. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not the worst for lack of a better way to say it. (laughs) It's not, you know, but, um, but the female characters are, you know, are a mother and a secretary. Um, and, and that's, and that's about it. And it is kind of this like hero's journey, you know, trope that Havel uses in the, that Havel uses in the piece. So I struggled with that a little bit and really tried to explicitly make gender one of the kind of slippery Mm -hmm. identifying factors in the play. Um, and, you know, really kind of explicitly massage that and handle that in my treatment of the play, because that is important to me. But ultimately, I actually don't think that that was very successful because Havel didn't write that. Mm -hmm. You know, the play is grounded, the play is grounded in some, you know, some just more conventional, for lack of a better word, gender tropes. Um, So, uh, so there's that. Um, And then I, I mean, I did struggle with the relevance of the play because as I was talking about before um, I, the ideas in the play absolutely are relevant to our society now. And I think kind of like once you, you know, somebody who's consuming this play, whether they're reading it or seeing it or listening to it, you know, can once they kind of like key into that or are led into it, 
you know, it's very, it can be very powerful. Um, but I, but getting there is just so hard because the language is, is really challenging and the time and the place where it, where it is set is really far away from, you know, is really far away from our society today. Um, and it's also just not something, you know, it's not something that a lot of people know about as a rule. Like it's not, you know, it's European history, you know, Mm -hmm. lots of people know about it. And it, you know, a lot of these things happened in our lifetimes, but, um, but it's not, uh, but there isn't kind of a, you know, base social level of understanding. So we kind of had to hope that we were giving, you know, everybody enough information to hang on. To me, that kind of raises an interesting, I mean, essentially unanswerable broader question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, uh-huh. I mean, it, it, you know, talking about kind of the challenges of thinking about gender, thinking about sexuality or bringing a feminist perspective or lens or interest or orientation or whatever to, I mean, a somewhat kind of canonical work um, or right. a form of, you know, a form of a canon um, when it's not necessarily there. I mean, kind of raises really interesting questions about what our, you know, ethical relationship to something like a canonical piece of art, right. theater, theory, whatever, um, can be. So, I mean, I'm, right. I mean, so, you know, did kind of the way you understood your relationship to, to the canon or a canon change at all yeah. as a result of some of these challenges that you identified? Um, yeah, that's a great it's a great question. It's a great way to put it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the experience that I, I, that I was just talking about where I was like, okay, well, we're going to do this. Then I'm going to like, I'm going to do the gender thing Mm -hmm. with this and I'm going to unpack that. And I'm going to, you know, for lack of a better way, I'm going to like fix that, which, you know, I don't think I ever really believed I was fixing anything. Um, that's not really, that's not really a, you know, viable artistic goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I was like, okay, you know, this, the, the, the gender politics in this piece kind of, you know, irritate me a little bit and go against kind of what I'm going for as an artist in, in a relatively mild way, but it's still happening. Um, so I'm going to do something about it, but it, you know, which I did, but ultimately again, it, it just, it wasn't written into the text. Um, and this is something that I struggle with. I know a lot of theater artists whose response to, you know, or whose idea of what it means to be a feminist theater artist is often, you know, oh, you know, doing a feminist interpretation of a Shakespeare or, you know, something like that. Um, and I just have never been interested in doing that. I, I've seen other people do things like that. And more often than not, it's, it falls flat. Sometimes it's amazing Mm -hmm. and that's great. And people should continue to do that. Um, but, uh, but I think my job, you know, as a feminist theater artist is much more to, uh, you know, shed light on actual feminist pieces of classic work that are not a part of the canon because of, uh, because of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, and to support and create new work that is actually feminist and is moving, you know, the art form and culture towards what I envision to be a better world. Um, so, so this kind of, this experience kind of reinforced that because this is really my first experience 
uh, really diving headfirst into like a complete project Mm -hmm. that was more a canonical kind of classic piece of work that I wanted to do a little bit of a gendered or feminist spin on. And then I kind of came out on the other side feeling like, yeah, it didn't really do it. And I don't think it could have. Right. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I want two more things from you, though. First of all, if you could tell everyone um, (laughs) your website. And secondly, if you could tell any NYC listeners that we have, if you have any projects upcoming that they should go see. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, My website is www.sarah-lyons.com. That's Sarah with no H and Lyons with a Y. Um, And, uh, and yeah, I have um, a incredibly beautiful solo show, which I helped develop and direct, um, called Baby Mama, is coming to the Ensemble Studio Theater in February and March of this year. Um, It's a a beautiful, very simple storytelling piece by uh, writer and performer Mariah McCarthy about her experience as a birth mother. Um, uh, So everybody should definitely check that out and there will be details on my website about that soon but it will be at est in february and march all right sarah thank you so much um i learned a lot i hope the audience learned a lot it was really interesting and really really fascinating to hear you talk about the play and about directing it and i enjoyed kind of rethinking and reliving my experience seeing it now with some distance and kind of hearing some more directly from you about it so thank you very much Awesome. Thanks, John. It was fun. I appreciate it. But now it's time for the favorite segment, even more favored than The Devil's Advocate, by everyone in the entire world, Jeffrey Graves. The name of the segment, which you don't know because you don't listen to the podcast, is My Tumblr Friend from Canada. (laughs) (laughs) It's close enough. Yeah. Because maybe we'll give some devilish advice. So the first question, Jeff Graves, comes from... Believe it or not, Jack Bauer in Vermont. Well, the Jack Bauer? It might be the Jack Bauer. Wow. Would, it, would, it, would you put it past the Jack Bauer to listen to the Always Already podcast? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, I Regardless, would. Regardless, Jack Bauer in Vermont asks, what is the best way to get out of going to a New Year's Eve party? I'm rsvp to go to the party. The hosts texted me yesterday to said they were excited I was coming. How do I gracefully leave and not go. John, there are three options. Three options? Three options that you have. Wow. Um, option number one. Okay. Okay. Is that you... No. Why not? <laughs> that happens all the time. Oh, I mean, there's been, there's been like three of them. This might I mean, get edited out. Your odds are pretty good. This might get edited uh, out. You could also have... Um, okay. And... Uh, you might edit that one out, too. The, <laughs> come on! Where's your spirit of adventure, John? The third way of getting out of a New Year's Eve party is perhaps the most simplest. Okay. Just to be honest and open with the uh, the host and tell them very politely that although you appreciate the invitation, 
um, you are being currently attacked by a swarm of bees, <laughs> and that has caused you to jump into the ocean, whereupon a shark bit up part of your leg, and you're being rushed to the hospital right now, except you, you don't really think you're being taken to the hospital in ambulance, because they're driving you some weird direction that you've never been before, and you realize that you've actually been hijacked by Al-Qaeda, who take you and put you on a helicopter and fly you to Afghanistan, where you live as a beet farmer for the rest of your life. Well, usually, Jeff, how this segment works is there's some banter on the best way to go about these conundrums that people present us with, but you solved Jeff I just, Bauer's I problem. I just solved your problem. Right. Yeah, three simple steps. Okay, so the next the next question comes from Jay. They just left the, They just left Jay. Jay? In Colorado, okay. interestingly enough. Interesting. So interestingly okay. enough, Jay in Colorado asks, for many, many years, I did a television show with a good friend of mine, in our younger days, this person has now moved on and makes another television show with two other people in this new city that they live in far away. I resent this very much. What should I do? Interesting. Interesting dilemma. Interesting it's dilemma, Jay indeed. Um, well, I don't know, John, what do you think? What should, <laughs> what should Jay do? I think that Jay should, I don't know, should, should be really, really jealous and sad. Aww. No. Aww. I'm sure that Jay, what, what really, what Jay needs to know, Jeff Graves, um, is that I'm sure that Jay's, I'm confused about this whole situation now, but former, tele, did you say television show? That is, that is the thinly guys <laughs> ruse that you can't okay, so Okay, so Jay's t- former television show partner, who's not doing a different television show somewhere else, I'm sure loves him still very dearly and Aww. is reminiscent and nostalgic about their former television show. Aw, well, it was a good television show. It was a great television show. All right, John. Um, so we've got uh, we've got at least one more question. Here. Okay. Okay. So uh, so you've received uh, th- this is a question from Mark Daniels in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. And what Mark Daniels asks is that you've received a present for Christmas that you absolutely hate. However, there's no way to return it. Uh, do you just put it in the basement and let it sit there for the next 10 years until you eventually get rid of it? Or do you do something more fun or proactive? Um, that's, a, that's a great question, Mark Daniels in Cincinnati. Um, I think, Mark Daniels, that it partly depends on how much you're going to offend the person who gave it to you. Is going to be a thing where they're like, oh, where's that beautiful chintzy knickknack I gave you? When really you're like, oh no, it's hiding in the back of the basement. Yeah. Um, or is it, you know, the kind of thing where, you know, they might see on YouTube that you try to, I don't know, like do some magic trick and light this chintzy knickknack on so, fire. So if you had to do a magic trick which, yes. which, which lights a chintzy knickknack on fire, John, could you please describe in as much detail as possible what that magic trick would be? Uh, I'm not at liberty to discuss that. Oh, come on. Jeffrey Come Graves. on. Uh, does it involve fire? Uh, maybe. 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 Can you even tell me if it involves <laughs> I fire or not? I can't even tell you God. if it involves fire. So, I mean, if it's a chintzy enough knickknack, it probably should involve fire. That's a great um, point. Um, I don't know. I mean, to maybe, I don't know. Have we given anyone actual advice? No, we haven't. So we should give someone actual advice. Okay. Of the advice. I think that Mark Daniels, just as Jeff proposed openness, 
with regards to uh, Jack Bowers, <laughs> all these TV executives, right? Yeah. Characters, yeah. whatever, writing us in. Um, you really you know, this is a really popular show. It is. I, I know it's a really. Trust me, I know Jack. Remember back when we were really popular in like Switzerland? I do. <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, we are popular not so much in Switzerland as we are in Austria and Denmark. Interesting. So yeah. I should we can make should make some grand sociological uh, generalization. Interesting. Interesting. Guys. You'd say Austria because. Um, Billy Thornton from Austria <laughs> writes in to ask, why are you so popular in my country? I, I wish I knew the answer. Uh, Billy Thornton? Just Billy. Bill, Just Billy Thornton. <laughs> okay. It's in Austria. clearly a different person than Billy Bob Thornton. Clearly a different one. I, I don't know if he likes Austria that much. Um, that was four great questions that we answered. Do you Jeff think Gray. Austria is a different place than Australia? Yes. My guess is yes. <laughs> Have you but, been to either of those places? Uh, sadly, no. So then, are you sure? Uh, I think that's a much uh, broader. Jeff, Jeff Graves from John's basement writes in to ask, "How are we sure that Austria and Australia are not really illusions?" Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave Jeff Graves in the basement um, with his ontological conundrum on his yeah. own. John, it's been a pleasure uh, podcasting with you again, uh, talking about Havel. Uh, you know, go forth and make the world a better place by using free online radio stuff. Sure, I will do that. Um, Jeff Graves, this quite literally, the auditory podcast would not exist without you because uh, if I'm you like and the, I had I'm like never the grandfather done grandfather of this podcast, sure, I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, I'll you can officially be the grandfather of the auditory podcast. Awesome. It's done. Um, so, John, I have one requirement though. Okay, I I get to call in at some point in the next year. Okay, onto your podcast. I think that if you'd like to do it more frequently, you can, but I won't hold you to it. But you are guaranteed an open invitation to come and intrude on the auditory podcast. Very good. Whenever and uh, maybe the next time I'm in, I'm in Colorado, we can. Uh, we can, I don't know, talk about another Hobble play or, you know, maybe we should just record an episode of us playing all the characters, voice acting all the characters. There we go. There's a lot of possibilities and hopefully we can actualize some of them in the future. Uh, well, farewell, all uh, John's podcasts. <laughs> Jeff doesn't even know the name of the podcast. No, it's always already. There we podcasts. go. I just can't talk. So, um, so uh, signing out, uh, this has been Jeff Graves. This has been John McMahon. It's been both an unnamed podcast and the Always Already podcast. Colorado Progressive Pulse. Bye. Bye. Rachel Brown and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwaysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us advice questions and texts you'd like us to discuss at alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. We tune for the next episode. B will be back and we'll have a guest co host to discuss John Francois Leotard, Libidinal Economy, and stay tuned for more texts coming up after that. Till then, bye.